0: Jonathan Kay is Canadian editor of Quillette, an Australian-based online magazine. He's also a host of its podcast, a regular op-ed contributor to the National Post newspaper, and a book author himself and for others. In fact, your most recent book is
1: Your Move, is that right? Uh, no, that was, uh, I think that was a year ago. So my latest book, actually, it just came out in the last couple of weeks. So uh, uh, maybe you didn't know. It's, uh, it's called Magic in the Dark. It's a history of film exhibition. Um, and it's centered on the four generation arc of a family that has owned a chain of movie theaters in New York City uh, and New England, pretty much since film was invented. Uh, like 120 years ago. So I, I write about all kinds of things. It's kind of random. <laughs> my subjects are kind of random, but that's my latest. Yeah, that's quite a that's quite a change from gaming. Well, yeah. But although my the book before that I did was uh, a history of French Canada, and then the one before I, that I think was conspiracy theories, and I did a book about the Mossad. Like I I kind of never hit the same subject more than once. I, I think it's an attention deficit disorder thing. <laughs>
0: Well, it's a sign of a curious mind. Or a restless one, I guess. So. Well, speaking of your move, I was going to ask you, uh, first of all, welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you for having me. And the topic of today's conversation is ghostwriting, what it is and how you particularly do it. And you're a gamer, so I'm wondering how gaming influences your ghostwriting.
1: Yeah. <laughs> never 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 thought of that connection i mean so one of the reasons uh, look board games are it's a pretty wide genre there's all kinds of games i'm i'm i've always been into historical games uh, games that recreate military campaigns of the past or they simulate you know political swings there's there's a game called rome where it covers the whole historical arc of the roman republic becoming uh imperial rome uh, I am, i'm fascinated by by history and by grand narratives uh, i love to immerse myself when you, when you play games you can be a protagonist and a pro, you know moving armies around the board or whatnot i think if you're a writer you love telling stories you love imagining stories you know many many writers are they're also they do movies they do scripts they write for tv These days, they may have YouTube channels or blogs or podcasts. Ghostwriting is, for me, it's another way of telling stories. It's also, I mean, part of it is just more banal. It's lucrative. Ghostwriting ghostwriting for me is much more profitable than writing under my own name. Uh, I tell people, financially speaking, the very worst thing I can do to a book is put my name on it. Yes, I like that line. So then would you say in a way
0: you're becoming part of the action in this, uh, in, in, you know, when you play games are, in a way, you're, are you stepping into this person's life and becoming part of their action?
1: So this is kind of interesting uh, because I think the last chapter that I wrote in this book called your move, which is uh, about board gaming is I talked about board games as a, a good game, like, a, you know, a complicated war game or something as as an exercise in collaborative storytelling right where the rules of the game ban- sort of bind you to a certain you know you can't do whatever you want it's it's like it's like a good novel where your characters are bound by who they are and their actions flow organically from what their personality is and what their circumstances are and a good game can be like that and it's a collaborative thing You you play like you and the other person neither of you know how the game is going to turn out because there's a, um, a healthy stress that exists, a competitive stress that exists Mm -hmm. when you're, when you're doing a good ghostwriting project, it's, it's, it's a collaborative tension. Uh, and ideally the worst ghostwritten books is when there's no tension is when you've got like a celebrity who says, okay, start taking dictation. And your ghostwriter is just, there's no tension because the person's just sort of copying everything they say. And that's what the book is a good ghostwriting collaboration there's tension because the ghostwriter is pushing back and saying, well, this is boring. Tell me more about that. Then the guy says, well, actually, I don't want to talk about that. It's private. The ghostwriter said, well, I don't know. It's pretty interesting stuff. And why are we including X if we're not going to talk about Y? People aren't going to trust the stuff about X if you don't say Y. And then, you know, there might be an argument or, uh, but you know, you can't push that tension to the breaking point or, or you'll kill the project. So you have to be a diplomat too.
0: Yeah, I guess you want to do justice to what happened. The artifice is, first of all, it has to be logical and not jump all around. But second of all, it has to hold the interest of the reader, obviously.
1: Yeah, well, look, so the short answer is it doesn't have to do anything because, I mean, theoretically, if a guy or a woman pays you to write their story, they're the client. And you could you could. Give them 60,000 words of nonsense. If they're happy with the nonsense, you've earned your money. But, and this, I actually wrote this in this essay about ghostwriting that maybe you read. Um, yeah, I
0: should, I should have mentioned that at the top. It was in Quillette and it was last September, I believe.
1: Yeah, it was Confessions of a Ghostwriter or something like that. And, and I think at the end I said, the, the metaphor that that is sometimes used for a ghostwriter is like, you know, you're not, you're not somebody's spouse, you're not their girlfriend or boyfriend. It's it's the analogy. is it's, it's a crude analogy, but it's to prostitution. You're, you're a literary prostitute using your skills to write propaganda on somebody else's behalf. That's like the crassest thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what I, what I confessed is I, I said, <laughs> I have too many emotions and feelings to be uh, uh, that detached about the way I practice my trade. I can't just uh, turn a trick and walk away. Like I feel some attachment to the product, the book, and if the book is heading in a trashy direction, like I, I push back, and in some cases, like I walk away from projects. And so it's it's a case where the customer isn't always right, and yeah. usually you're you're doing the customer a favor by saying this isn't like this isn't good. Like no one's going to want to read this, and it becomes complicated because sometimes. I think I wrote in a piece that the first question as a ghostwriter, you have to answer is what's the motivation here? Who pushed for this project? Cause often the person you're ghostwriting for, they didn't push for the project. It was like their chief of staff or their publicist or their spouse. You know, they got a new agent or a new manager and they're like, well, you know, let's get you some publicity. Let's get a book out there. It will support, you know, it'll be part of a multimedia strategy and all this stuff. And, and, Knowing that information is important because sometimes you'll be dealing with the author, the person whose name is going to be on the book, and they seem very reluctant or taciturn. And you're like, well, if they wanted to write a book. Why are they being so so reticent? And, and you realize they, they, in some cases, they didn't actually want to write the book. It was their public. Yeah,
0: it's the family, as you say.
1: There may be people who don't want the book to be written. You know, right. you get a publicist and um, a spouse who are like, let's do this. And you'll have like a business partner and a sibling who's like, absolutely let's not do this because then they're going to find out about X and Y. And, and then, you know, I have been in some pretty delicate situations where, where the ghostwriter can find out like a lot of stuff yeah. that doesn't end up in the book, but is really explosive. And obviously, you know, you have to be a professional and you sign non-disclosures and stuff. And, you know, there's no thought of breaking your representations in that regard, but it, it can put you in very tricky situations because it's never just you and the author there's always a dozen people hovering in the background right you
0: know that puts me in mind of for years i uh, i had a consultancy firm in ottawa and i wrote a lot of material for different government departments kind of motherhood issues Uh, going out about how to save the environment, how to fill out your income tax online, that sort of thing. And my line or joke was that in the government, they had a humor check. So if anything that I wrote was funny, they took it out. Yeah. And that kind of pissed me off because I wanted to entertain the reader. But as you say, they're paying for it. You know, I I wanted to make sure that the articles got good coverage across the country. And that's what I told them. But there's no sense of humor there. Yeah. I guess in a way it's that it's it's a similar idea. Like for you, I mean, you're a a funny man and it's entertaining. Yeah. How does that fly?
1: So as a ghostwriter, there's several problems with humor. The first problem is that humor is incredibly personal. And even if you write a good joke, it's the first sign that people who know the author who read it say this, the author didn't write that because that's not his style of humor. Or the, the author could never have cracked this joke. Like the kind of jokes we make, it's kind of like the way we walk or the way we talk or our signature it's very difficult to disguise. Um, you know, you can write institutional prose of the, you know, the, the, the kind you're, you're talking about for, for government agencies and stuff and do a reasonably good job of mimicking somebody else. But as soon as you get into jokes, you know, it's, it's personal. The other thing is when you talk about writing for an institution, it's somewhat similar in writing and ghostwriting for a famous person because there's just as the famous person has their retinue of people who are going to read it. In a government agency, it's always the most risk averse person in the retinue or an agency is the person who has veto power in the joke. And the most right. risk averse person often has no sense of humor or it's their job. It's their job not to have a sense of humor. So, yeah, humor is an issue. Again, the thing that the
0: tension, as you refer to it, is that humor is entertaining. And I mean, if you are a good writer, you're a chameleon. You should be able to tell jokes in the voice of, the cl- of your client
1: yeah but if the client could tell good jokes he'd probably write the thing himself right like no no about that well let me put it this way a necessary but not sufficient condition of good humor is a sense of honesty and and looking at the world in a um an unvarnished way like it's it's very difficult to tell jokes if you're a propagandist or if you're blinkered or i mean there's one of the problems with government agencies most funny people I know are good writers and most writers I know at least have some good sense of it. it's not a, you're right it's not a complete overlap but most of the time when I sit down with a writer they may appreciate humor but uh the other thing I'd say when you ask what's the purpose of the book if the purpose of the book it's often to make the person look serious or important and humor yeah. And yeah. it's not it's not the most obvious tool for making say a politician look no yeah. no but you want to make them human too yeah you do although you unfortunately know. in the political idiom humanness or humanity whatever it's typically like you know holding babies or you know being photographed with a shovel you know during a landslide like there's there's a certain kind of cliche idiom of what makes a politician look humor a human and and typically humor isn't part of that it's unfortunate I'd I'd get more work if it if it were Um, but especially in Canada like in Canada when's the last politician you knew who consistently made you laugh in Canada can you think of any well they all make me laugh actually no but like I mean intentionally yes yes (laughs)
0: Yes, you're right. I mean, I suppose Kretchen used to be kind of cute and, and good natured. And well, and-
1: what's interesting about Kretchen is the only time he made me laugh intentionally was with that golf ball stunt at Gomery, which I think sorry, we're going to lose our non Canadian listeners here with his parochial. References. Yes. And if I, if I remember correctly, that was after he was out of power. And by the way, I've seen speeches by Bob Ray, which were very funny. He's the Ontario premier, but he was only funny after he left power. So, again, it's sort of a ability to be
0: honest, but only when you're not in power or not trying to get into
1: power. I met Michael Ignatieff at a Canadian tire on Yonge Street buying cat food, and he was super funny. But it was after six months after he'd gotten turfed by the right. liberals. So eventually these people regain their sense of humor. But first they they have to become ordinary grunts like you and me. OK. Are you as a ghostwriter? Are
0: you is it supposed to be a secret?
1: Yeah, well, you have to take a look at the contract, which 99% of the time is going to say there's a non disclosure provision. However, (laughs) the people who who breach this are often the authors themselves. So, so when I did Justin Trudeau's memoir, I wasn't going to breach confidentiality, like, I'd get sued. But then he was giving an interview to Susan Delacorte of the Toronto Star, and he just blurted it out. He says, Yeah, John K. helped me with the book. I was like, Okay. There's
0: no, he didn't put you in the acknowledgements. There's no printed reference to you
1: writing anything. Is that correct? You know what? Let's do this in real time. I have the book in front of me. Just one sec. I actually, I think I might be in the acknowledgements, but I've actually. Yeah, so it's not a complete secret then. No, 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 but one sec. So... Uh, acknowledgments so here's the acknowledgments page 333 yes i am one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen fifteen <laughs> so i'm the 16th person named is it uh, just your name or is it does it say no. thanks for the writing my thanks too. and it lists about 30 names the 15th name is my agent I'm the sixteenth name. Oh, nice! Uh, nice. The seventeenth <laughs> name is the guy they they brought in to to clean up some of the stuff that I screwed up. Yeah, so I was the acknowledged, but then it was, I wasn't explicitly acknowledged as as the editorial assistant as as they're formally described until, uh, True to Himself told it to Susan Delacorte, which ended up being like good for me because then all these people came to me to write their book and they were like, um, Oh well, if, if you did if you if you did this guy's book and you got elected. Then, then, you know, surely you can do, you know, my dad started a successful dry cleaning business. Surely you could do his book. I mean, so it ended up being good for me, but also you get these situations. I was at a book launch where for, I remember I was there with, this is actually not so long ago, with another ghostwriter who'd done a really good job on this guy's book and it was all secret and she'd signed all these non-disclosures. Let's call her Jane Smith. And uh, we were at that party and the guy whose name was on the book, famous guy, got up in front of the microphone and he'd had like three or four drinks. And he said, oh, yeah, thanks all for coming. And thanks to Jane Smith, who wrote this thing. And I was like, oh, wow. OK,
0: yeah, well, the, the whole point, uh, I would think you get someone else to write, the, you know, ghost write the book for you is to make you look. Like you're smart, and so if it comes out that oh wait a minute I didn't even write my own book, that's a kind of uh, it tarnishes it. If it says that it's written, you know, this is a book by Justin Trudeau, I assume that it's written by him. I've I've been duped otherwise.
1: Yeah, um, so there's a there's a famous quote from George Will, the old school (coughs) conservative columnist. He was asked about a book by Glenn Beck. And Glenn Beck at the time was kind of churning out books and everyone knew, you know, he wasn't writing them. And George Will said, I, he says, I'm not interested in a book that the author hasn't read. <laughs> Which, like not, not only had Glenbeck not written it, but he probably hadn't even read it. Um, <laughs> and and well, that's and actually, the
0: thing. It's all it is, is a freaking marketing
1: tool. Charles Barkley, but it's worse than that. Charles Barkley, the basketball player, this 30 years ago, is famously said there was, there was something controversial in his, his quote-unquote book, and it was an autobiography, and he famously said that he'd been misquoted in his autobiography. <laughs> such, a, such a great line. But can I just say something? Um, these things are very elastic. So I have had people come to me and say, hey, I want you to ghostwrite this, right? And then I say, okay, well, you know, at w- what stage are you in the process, in the project? And they'll say, well, you know, I've, I've written down a few notes. Can you take a look? And they'll show me what they've written. I'm like, this is, this is pretty good. Can you write more like this? Cause then you don't need to pay me. We, you know, I can I'm happy to be your editor or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, at least, at least one of my projects, I was supposed to go right, go straight. And I ended up being an editor. And by the end of like the last chapter, the guy wrote, I was barely changing a word. He was just a natural. So whenever I go into these things, sometimes people will say, I need to do this, this, and this. And I tell them, relax, you don't know what you need until we have a conversation, because you may not need as much as you think you need. You may need a conventional ghostwriter, or you may need an editor or something in between. You, you know, what was very interesting
0: to me about the Trudeau book is, you know, as I've, I've said before, it seems to me that you bring in a ghostwriter because you want the world to think you're either smarter or a good writer. you want you want the public to connect the good writing with you. and yet you use the term airheaded frauds in the article talking about some of the some of the clients. but Trudeau, you say, wasn't that way
1: no no yeah
0: he was actually smarter than his public image it's a bit like uh, 100
1: yeah so uh i mean part of my my job there was you know i went around with with trudeau and saw him speak at public events he's i mean i don't think it comes out now because he's been in power and he's just like he's so embittered and just it's it's not a good look for him but when he was on the hustings 2014 2015 he was a great extemporaneous yeah. speaker i remember i was at there was one event it was a uh, it was a college event in the ottawa area i forget i forget what's possible anyway and he was fielding questions especially like in young audiences he was really good off-the-cuff speaker and he's also widely read so like one of the reasons <clears> we got along was just uh we'd read like a lot we grew up around the same time in montreal and we had even some of the same friends and we were at McGill around the same time. So like, we also just like read some of the same books and like and, what? You know. Oh, I mean, some of it was, was trashy stuff. It was like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, like adolescent books and stuff like that. Right. But then, you know, his dad had also like imposed a kind of classical education on them. And, you know, that read like, you know, Homer and Virgil and stuff like that. Some stuff that I hadn't read. And, um, and he had a genuine interest in the stuff. And he could quote from memory high and low literature, like, from, from the Iliad down to, you know, Sam McGee was from Tennessee. Like, he, you know, he, he he knew, he had what I would call an organic love of the written word. Something you can't fake. And, and it impressed me. And so when people say, oh, the guy's an airhead and he's, an idiot, he's not, he's absolutely not an idiot. He's absolutely not an airhead. He's an intellectually curious guy who has been trapped by the vacuous atmosphere of party politics which requires people to talk like an automaton well you want to get it so that it's dumb enough
0: that everyone understands i suppose
1: and sometimes it's so dumb that you contradict yourself which is to my mind what's happened with some of this convoy stuff where you've got uh, i don't want to get i don't know i don't think this is a political podcast but 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 sometimes with the your slogans you're so quick on the draw with the slogans that you forget what slogans you you use the week before and you end up stepping on your own toes because yeah. often you're not actually thinking in an organic way and responding to events. You're just, you're kind of like, you're hitting the feeder bar and words are coming out, but it there's no thought behind them. Uh, and, and that's, and that's not because these people are dumb. It's just because party politics makes people sound dumb. Okay. So the book itself, were you kicked off the book? No.
0: Um, which, you said cleaned up, so so maybe you could take me through the, through the process. You started by interviewing him, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to tell too much about the, the process, but um, like I, I'm still bound by you non know, disclosure. But yeah, like basically, uh, okay. just in it's just in general sense about no, what yeah. how you go about it. Yeah, I you, I generally produce a full draft of a book for a person. However, in this case, um, when you have a book for a politician, okay the book is half information and a half campaign platform, right? Because right. the purpose of this book is wasn't for money. He, he donated all, all, all his proceeds went to the red cross. So he didn't make a cent out of this book. Um, you're not doing it for money. You're doing it because you want to get elected and everybody knows it. Like it's not, there's yeah. no real pretense. So, so why buy it in the first place then? Well, I try, you know, I tried to <laughs> give people a reason to because The first half of this book, and I think this is true of a lot of political memoirs, is that oftentimes, like maybe the first half of the book that tells the person's life story. Yes, it'll be a propaganda version of life story, but there will be interesting information in it. Like I remember I read a book about Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney, actually, his family's very interesting origins, even though he looks like just this boring white guy, the whole Mexican subplot. And of course, you know, the Mormon stuff. Yeah. Uh, And the same is true with Trudeau. He had a really int- for obvious reasons and some not so obvious reasons. He had a really interesting uh, home life and background and some of the stuff in the, I'm kind of proud of some of the stuff in the book. Proud of what? It's a good story. Like a, you're proud good, of the way you crafted the story. I elicited details that I think are interesting. There's a lot of details that are in here because I elicited them in conversations. So, right. Okay. That's, that's what I'm proud of. However, I'm not a political speechwriter, I'm not a political manifesto writer. So inescapably, as the book goes on, certainly the last third of the book, you know, by this stage, you're describing Trudeau in his iteration as, um, you know, he's running for, for the liberal, he wants to become the candidate in Papineau writing. He becomes a candidate, he becomes an MP, he becomes more prominent. And now, you know, he's looking to become a leader of the party the book, That section of the book is more explicitly political, and understandably, it had to be done up in such a way that is up to date with what Trudeau's own ambitions were at the time the book went to press. And so, like, those things are unknowable for chronological reasons. You know, if you're writing it in March and the book goes to press in September, a lot can happen in politics in six months. And also, I'm not a member of the Liberal Party. Right. I don't I'm not in their caucus meetings, I'm not in their strategy meetings. So I don't know what messaging they want. So and and that's there's no ghostwriter in the world who could have come in and intuited all that because you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, you're not looking at their polling data. And even if you were like, it's not your job to kind of craft no. a, sort of a leader party platform. It's your, your job to tell a person's story.
0: So what happened then once you'd finished with it, they,
1: they basically had some political people look at it and say, Oh, we better change this messaging. I, I, I actually don't know. Right. I mean, it's a black box. And you know what? I didn't want to know because they cash you out at that time, your job's done. And This is the best part about being a ghostwriter, which is that once your your manuscript is accepted, you walk away. So you don't have to worry about sales or making your advance back or anything. It's not even that. It's not even that. I'm talking about, so I've written like half a dozen books under my own name. And you're always, there's all these questions that come back to you. Oh, geez, do you think you could do this? Oh, we have another book, you know, coming out with this author. Do you think you could promote this author in this chapter? I had one book where they came back and it's like our legal department just spotted this at the last minute that you you quoted this guy and it's a trademark violation it was some intellectual property thing like I was running around at the last minute trying I was making phone calls right like <laughs> to lawyers and stuff saying hey can we get rights to the song lyric it was song lyrics uh, Yes, it was, it was a weird thing uh, this is a decade ago i forget the details but it was like really stressful And I remember because the New York Times review, which was a good review of my book, was just coming out and they were scrambling to get the books on the shelves. uh, And the impediment was this legal thing. It was like I I spent my whole week dealing with this nonsense. If you go straight, you don't have to deal with any of that stuff. Like you just you give them the manuscript. And in that respect, it, it really is like prostitution where, you know. Once you, you, you get up, you get up, brush your teeth, and you leave, and and that's that that really is an advantage because you don't have the headache that comes with all the all the things that a real writer has to deal with after they submit their first manuscript. How much do you get paid? A lot of money. No, um, so <laughs> it's so it's like it's like everything else, because um, people people ask me what I should charge. And yeah. I always, I always start with the first, the, the mo- most important question is what will they pay? Cause it's, it's, you know, supply and demand. But the other thing is how long is this going to take? Cause people yeah. say, well, it's, it's a book. So one guy came to me and said, well, how much you ch- will you charge? Would you charge if you were going to ghostwrite an academic history of a military regiment? Uh, well, you know, if it's 20,000 words and you, and all the research has been done for you, I might charge, you know, I don't know fifteen twenty twenty five thousand dollars. However, if you have to do all the research, and yes. the thing is supposed to be a hundred thousand words, and you're going to have to do review, you know, edits, and second and third drafts, that that might take you a year or two to do. So I might charge a hundred thousand dollars for that. Like it's, yeah. Well, you, I mean, don't you just say, well, it's a per diem, and uh, that's what it is. No, I never say that because um, you, you, they
0: always want a, a, an estimate of the, the total package. Is that it?
1: Yeah, and the other thing is, I, I don't think writers should should write on a, on a per day or per hour basis because it, it creates. It's sort of like when Charles Dickens was being paid by the word. You know, all his short stories were like fifty thousand words. Uh, you know, if <laughs> your right. goal if your goal is to write a good book and you can write that book in a month, you shouldn't be penalized for that as opposed to writing a crappy book in six months. Right. So right. Right.
0: Okay. Um, yeah. That's okay. My you said you were proudest of the. Uh, answers that you elicited from Trudeau so my question is so what kind of questioning did you do to get those great answers
1: well so um, it's pulling threads right so when you're interviewing somebody you have to say to yourself if I were reading this what what what's the other thing what's the thing I would want to know before to make this interesting and Mm -hmm. what's the thing that I would want to know after? that this would make more interesting. So you're, you have to read the book before you've written it when you're asking the questions. And sometimes you're asking the questions and the guy says, I don't want to talk about it. And you're like, you filed away and you'd ask them about it a week later because sometimes the second time you ask, they will talk about it. Sometimes they say, I don't want to talk about it in a way that indicates that they will never talk about it and it's not worth like you just, But you develop, over the years, you develop the sense of when it's not worth asking again. The, uh, the most important thing is you need to talk to other people. So it's like, let's say you're doing a computer rendition, a three-dimensional rendition of a person for a movie, like for a CGI movie. You can never just study them from one angle. You have to use sensory measurements from different angles. And usually if I'm doing a biography or an autobiography, uh, I usually talk to to a couple dozen people, uh, their relatives, their friends. I talk to people mm-hmm. who knew them at different stages in life. Um, I talk to people who knew them in different ways. Professionally, personally, if they have sports buddies, it's important to talk to them. Often they tell you a lot.
0: Just kind of a panoramic view is what you're after.
1: Yeah. And I try and find people who have seen them in different emotional states. It's sort of like sometimes you know, people say, Oh, how long should I know someone before I get married to them? And to me, it's not how long you've known them is ha- have you seen them in the full range of emotional states? Have you seen them in mm-hmm. sadness? Have you seen them in happiness? Have you seen them, you know, right. envious or embittered, like, because you don't know a person in, <clears throat> until you've seen them in these emotional, different emotional states. And I try when I'm doing ghosting, I, I try and find people who have seen this person, like if their business went bankrupt 20 years ago, I find people who, who are with, the person at the time his business went bankrupt because what happens is the author will give you a list of people to interview and they're usually people who knew the person in their moment of greatest triumph right yes that's not that's not always useful well it's not again it's not human is it it's it's not human but it is human the impulse to say the person i'm now is the person i really am you know um all that other stuff was just which is not true Ten years ago, that was the person you really were, and twenty years ago. So, if you're trying to do a well-rounded depiction of a person, you can't just take the people who know you now, and this can be tricky, right? Because some of these people, maybe, you know, the relationship's gone south, or you have, and you have to. Well, that's what that. you want,
0: though. You want someone who's well. You take it into account, but you want uh, the truth from as many people as you can as you can get.
1: Right. Yeah, but the reality is, if you're ghosting, it's you're, it's essentially an authorized. Yeah. Ghosting yes, is yes, a of kind course. of authorized biography, right? And yeah, typically. Yeah. And yeah, you have to respect oh. it. And if the person's paying you money, and you've signed a contract, and they say you, you can talk to A, B, and C, and you say, well, what a D, E, and F, and they say, okay, to D and E, but not F, you have to respect that. Like you can't can't yeah. secretly <laughs> to talk to F. Like it just it doesn't work like that. Right. You say
0: that you're typically brought in by the publisher or the agent after the author, quote, has already taken a stab
1: at it. Is that that typically what happens? Oh, it varies a lot. So it varies so much. I've been brought in by publishers. I've been brought in by agents. I got an interesting phone call a couple of weeks ago where they hadn't talked to an agent it was two people. They hadn't talked to an agent. They hadn't talked to a publisher, but they had a plan and they had money. They weren't they weren't necessarily interested in going to a major publisher. Like they had a multimedia plan and a social media plan that would allow them to just self publish the thing. And that would be one component of, of sort of a multimedia thing that the book was one component, but it didn't have to be Collins, right? It didn't have to be yeah. Penguin or it could be uh, just, you know, Amazon Publishing. And well, that, uh, you yeah. look at the most successful book
0: ever published in Canada. It was self-published. It's the Wealthy Barber. Wealthy
1: Barber was self-published. I just didn't even heard know that, that recently.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what I heard. Anyway,
1: and and I mean, as you know, you can get the biggest published publicity machine in the world and a major publisher behind a book, and the book flops, or it yeah. could be by you know JoShmo Publishing, and you may, you and I may not even think, oh, that's a good book but it catches fire in social media and book group circles and it sells, you know, quarter million copies. Like it's, there's no, it's this, there's, there's a sort of alchemy to it. And, and, and I tell people, cause sometimes if they don't have an agent, they're looking to me for quasi agent advice. And I say, look, I, I'm not an agent. You know, it's not like my books are with my name on a sell a million copies. So, you know, if you want to talk to Stephen King, I'm not him, but I tell them, I say, even if I could tell you, which I can't, that your book has, the magic quality that will potentially make it like a bestseller that doesn't mean it will be a bestseller because so much of this just seems to be luck yeah like the secret well, or uh that book, was a hundred shades of gray or yeah yeah that was well,
0: self that was
1: self-published too but that was like just a, mar- a garbage book Oh, like was, it, I know. It wasn't even a good sex book. Like even i sex it was stupid. And and so, I and read it. Uh, I re-
0: we were driving. I think we were driving in the states somewhere. And I thought, okay, I, I should know about this. So I started reading it out loud in the car, and it's just, uh, why the why the hell did this
1: book sell so much? But it did. I, it's, it's like Fuck. I forget who said it. They said it is very difficult to be unsuccessful as a pornographer <laughs> and i was like well this this book is a is, is a worthy effort it's and the everything. secret that's but, the secret but that but it made money and and there's some amazing books i'm reading some book i'm i'm not even gonna name them because i'm reading some non-fiction books right now it's like how is this book not a bestseller it's so brilliant you know i look well you better it. tell it's, you got to tell me about it then i well actually i'm gonna uh probably have heard of it one second let me get the cover you know what? I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna tell you offline because it's, I don't want to, I don't want to butcher the the name of it. It's such a good cool okay. book. But I'm gonna publish an excerpt in Quillette. I mean, part of the reason I read so much nonfiction is wait I'm a sec. That's like, a tease for our listeners to go read it. Is that it? Then, then I'm, I'm gonna find it. I'm gonna find it as I talk. I'm just saying. One of the reasons I read <laughs> um, I read so much nonfiction is I'm always looking for excerpts for Quillette. This this book that I read I was like oh it's so good and so I'm reading it and I'm like super excited by the book itself like I I love it as a a reader right I'm also loving it as an editor I'm like wow this will be fantastic as an excerpt so the book is called The Making of the Bible by Conrad Schmid and Jens Schroeter I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly and it's from Harvard University Press and I'm reading it now I think it came out like a month or two ago I was like Wow, this book is just it's fantastic. It's one of the best.
0: What's so um, good about it?
1: It tells us who we are because Judeo-Christian, I mean, not all of us, but those of no. us who, whose cultural roots extend in, through Judeo-Christian culture, it purports to be the history of the Bible, but it's the history of the Judeo-Christian world of ideas. No. Uh, it starts really early, like it starts 3,000 years ago. And in sort of the mists of time, uh, and it takes us through. It's also a book about politics, right? Because the content of the Bible is shaped by, you know, the Hittites and the the Byzantine Empire, sort of Babylonian exile, of course. And then the Persians come in and actually get surprisingly good press in some respects from biblical sources. Uh, And then a lot of the Bible is written in, in Greek. And then, you know, there's, there's Egyptian subplots. You're reading it and you're reading like this is the history of the Middle East as projected on this incredible crowdsourced literary project, which we now know as, as the Bible, but at the time was going off in a thousand different directions. Like the section toward the end of the book is about the, the New Testament. It's just crazy. I mean, there's, there's so many gospels that were common currency in like first and second century uh, Asia minor that like never made it into the Bible. Right. Mm-hmm. They were, or, you know, all these, all these Pauline letters, you know, there's a bunch of them that made it into the new Testament, but there's a whole bunch of others that didn't letters from James and Luke, the old okay, Testament. So how, how does this relate to ghostwriting then? <laughs> oh, it doesn't at all. Uh, no, no I, But can, and can you make that connection? What I would say is, The kind of books, like in my dream world, the kind of books that I want to ghostwrite is this kind of book. Like, I love books. So, you know, problem is these aren't the kind of books that most people want ghostwritten. Because most of the time someone wants a book ghostwritten, it celebrates a person rather than an idea. Whereas I love reading books and writing books about ideas. For me, the best project is when somebody comes in and says, I want to write a book about my life. But the book is also about their industry. So for instance, this book I just collaborated on, it wasn't a ghostwriting project, but this book that I just put my name to called um, Magic in the Dark, which is a history of film exhibition. It was amazing because I profiled this guy's family. uh, Charlie Moss who's my my co-author on it. But I was also educating myself about this like incredible history of film exhibition and the people who pioneered it, which like I didn't know anything about And I got to spend a year like knee deep in research on it. It was amazing. There was another project I did where, uh, unfortunately, this one did not go. It didn't end up in a book for complicated reasons. The guy was in a very specific kind of consumer product industry. And I spent like a year touring North America's all its factories and plants and learning how these things are made. And I'm a former engineer. So I was like, I was a kid in a candy store. And unfortunately, I ate too much candy because when I showed the guy that drafts my chapter, like I was mostly interested in the industry, but he was like, no, 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 no. this book has to be about how awesome I am. I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, you're pretty awesome, but like no one's ever written a book about this industry and it's super interesting. So maybe that would be a way to get people to read the book as opposed to just like, how great you are and so we couldn't get past that and uh, kind of, kind of, kind of felt yeah
0: that. that's disappointing but then i mean the thing is a writer never throws out what's done so it seems to me that that if it, it is that fascinating you should be able
1: to or you were doing it on his dime though 100 percent on his dime. And who owns he, it he, oh yeah he owns every word of it and yeah um, he paid me well i can't complain about it and I also uh, signed a non-disclosure.
0: Yeah. Cleverly. Okay. The,
1: non-disclos- the, the non-disclosure was with uh, an entity, not a person. So it, it'll survive the death of this particular person. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I can't write any of it and, and nor should I be able to. I mean, this person paid for my travel and my research. And if, if this person decides they don't want a book out of it, I couldn't just say, well, you know, the hell with you. I'm going to write my own book. Like it's not, it doesn't look like that. So, and, and even if I did, I wouldn't feel right about it. You know, I have some ethics.
0: Well, that's how you end the article about, you know, you talk about content and the fact that I'm not exactly sure what you're getting at there. Obviously, if you're, if, if it's not true and you're being asked to write stuff, that's not true. You're not going to, you're not going to accept the project. Is that what you're getting at? I actually
1: uh, like, like every good ghostwriter, I forget what I wrote 15 minutes after I wrote it. (laughs) I'm on to the next project. Um, Well, look there, you're not going to write outright lies, um, and to be honest, I'm not sure, I, it's, I don't think I've been asked to write out lies, but.
0: Well, you've to, been asked to, you've been asked to emphasize certain parts of the truth, but not the whole truth.
1: Yeah. And, and, and you have to ask yourself, how much of this do I feel comfortable with? And also we can't all afford to be priests and angels, right? Like if you're ghostwriting to put food on the table and somebody says, "Write, write this down and Unless what you're writing down is like dangerous propaganda, you're probably going to do it because, you yeah. know, this, this is what you're paid to do. And by the way, there are thousands of people in Ottawa right now writing bullshit because that's what government flax do. And it's not just a liberal thing. It's what conservative flax do. And it's just kind of goes with the trade. And it's and it's what corporate flax, you know, Oreos are the best cookies. OK, yeah. maybe Oreos are not the best all, cookies. Like, you know, that's right. We never yeah. get the whole truth.
0: Yeah. yeah what about getting the voice is that that is that important to get to, when you were doing Trudeau's uh book was it like how, what is his voice and and how did you get it Do you just tape him and and kind of get a sense of the rhythm or or what
1: uh I for whatever reason I kind of I think I have a gift for that is I can sit in a room with a person for a short amount of time and uh I, I've been told that that's kind of something I'm I'm good at doing um, is is what sort of mimicking a voice, mimicking the patterns of the way they communicate and, and putting that in. And that that's a quality. I think that's a skill you either have or you don't, you know, I'm not good with music, but you know, like you can play a song for somebody and then they'll sit down on the piano and play it back for them. You either kind of have that ability or don't. I think it's true for ghostwriting for getting the tone, right. There were two projects. I did one that I actually just described where even though uh, there was no book that came out of it, I was told that I'd gotten the person's voice right. I was (laughs) using the voice to tell a story they didn't want to tell. So, (laughs) and that, that can get a little spooky, right? Because over the course of the project, you're kind of learning sort of like a Don Quixote thing where you're sort of like voicing somebody else and it can make them feel a little unsettled if you get the voice like too right. So it, it's a skill, but it also feels a little unsettling. And sometimes you don't get it right. And, and this goes back to what we are talking about humor. One of the most common things he says, I would never use that word. That, that's, one, that's one reason I never use what I would call like unusual or idiosyncratic formulations. Like they're just some people who in their entire life have never used the word moreover or they've never used the term, you know, per chance, or like, I mean, I I think most people know what the word moreover means, but probably 50% of people have never used the word moreover. So whenever I'm writing a word, I always say, am I putting down a word that the person's gonna be like, aha, that's a tell, it's sort of like a poker player who like gives a little twitch when he has a good hand. So I, I try and keep the vocabulary kind of neutral and I concentrate on a rhythm, right? Yep, um, most people when they communicate, they have a certain rhythm and often I don't have written samples to work from because you'd be shocked how many incredibly smart people never write a, a single sentence. Um, including
0: and you've got a tape, tape
1: recorder though. I have a tape recorder, but I don't use it. Like I, I use it as reference, but yeah. I, I never I never listen to it. I, 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 I'm taking notes when I'm 90% of what I'm doing is listening. I'm listening for rhythm and I'm listening. The details, if there's a name or a date or something, I'll write that down. But it's I'm using my ears. I'm not, I'm not the recording is just there for backup. So that's the number
0: one thing, is it rhythm? And then like you you were talking earlier about being proudest of having I you know pulled out details that are really interesting that probably haven't been made public. How do you do
1: that? So when you're writing an editorial or an op-ed or any kind of essay, how do you decide what gets included and what doesn't? Right. The way you decide is you start from the conclusion. So, what am I trying to argue? And if what I'm putting in here doesn't help advance my conclusion, it doesn't belong here. You kind of have to use a same kind of approach when you're writing a book like this. It says, "What's my goal?" my goal is to tell a story my goal is to get people to know this person this chapter is about getting to know him when he was a teenager what what's important to include so that people know who this person was what their life was like make them feel like they're in the same room with him and if the person says to me oh my mom was a wonderful person she was xyz i also had a father anyway so then and i'm like well, okay wait a sec Let's talk about your dad. He says, this this is a a comically stupid example I'm giving. If the person (laughs) says, I don't want to talk about my dad, what I say to them is, it's, it's fine. There's a million reasons, you know, so the first sentence of Anna Karenina, right? There's a million reasons you don't want to talk about your dad. I get that. The problem is if you don't talk about your dad, you're not talking about you. It means that when the person is trying to situate themselves in the room with you, there's a whole section of the stage that's just a blur, and if too much of the stage is blurred out, the sense of immersion is lost.
0: For you, as a as the writer, you you draw the analogy with the lawyer. You have to know all the sorted stuff in order to be able to tell the story better. You're not going to necessarily include all the stor- uh, sorted stuff, but you want to know it so you've got a good
1: handle. Yeah, and sometimes people take that to to a ridiculous extent and they tell me all kinds of stuff <laughs> uh and i'm like okay well this is i love the spirit but this is too much maybe um but better that than the opposite and yeah it's or or i don't know if i put that in the example but it's, it's when you go to the tailor you don't suck your gut in you let your gut out and then it's the tailor's job to make you look good anyway that's that's a simpsons reference this is a scene where homer is getting a, a suit made for and uh and yeah, the lawyer, you know, this, this is a stock scene in, in every pulp fiction thing where the lawyer comes and says, I want to know everything. I can't protect you unless you tell me the truth. To some extent, ghostwriting works the same way.
0: That puts me in mind, and we're just winding down here. That puts me in mind of Tarantino, who apparently wrote a novel for each of his films. And then I guess he gets his actors to read it. But then he drills them with all sorts of questions about that character so that they really know how that person would act in different situations.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is kind of, (laughs) I mean, you you hear all these crazy stories about actors who show up on set and it's like, hey, Joe, it says, my name isn't Joe, it is joe Frederick, you know like <laughs> I'll say then and it's like uh, okay there Frederic uh, you want to go get a sandwich like uh, and i i suppose that helps some people i mean the thing about me is i, I have no pretensions that i'm any kind of artist like I, what i do is trade it's on a hack and yeah. uh but but you're not a yes man yeah but you know what so there are plenty of, of tradesmen who aren't yes If If you ask a guy to come design your kitchen and you say, okay, I got this great idea. I'm gonna have three fridges over there. And then the oven is gonna be, I'm gonna bury it horizontally in the ground. So you open the door up, up toward your face and uh, there's no sink uh, and like one cupboard the guy's going to say, wow, that sounds like a really stupid kitchen. And you're not going to be able to sell this house in 10 years. And you say, Hey, I don't want any lip. Like, just, like it, and if the guy has lots of work, he's going to say, well, I'm not going to do this job. Cause this is a stupid kitchen. Like if he's doing his job, he's going to say to you, I think we either need an architect or you need to like think about what you want for the kitchen, because I can do all these things, but I don't feel right taking your money on this. Right. Uh, or he right. may say, I don't have any other work and I'm late on my mortgage and I'm going to give this guy his three fridges and his stupid kitchen because I need the money. I'm in the fortunate position of not being able to build a stupid kitchen. Like I, I can say, I'm, let's build a D. De- now, I, at the end of the day, you still have to give the guy kitchen he, he wants. You can't say I'm taking over this project and this is going to be my kitchen. It's his kitchen. And you have to be able to walk away from the kitchen when you're done. But it's nice to be in a position where you feel at least proud of, of, of what you've done even if it's not exactly the kind of kitchen that you would have designed so as you put it in the article
0: you must you must respect the chain of command and you can't get huffy and precious about being an artist
1: yeah but i always do uh i mean that's that's the thing is part of the tension is inside you it's not Ten, there should be tension, creative tension with the other person. Uh, and by the way, I should just say this book that I just finished, I've just published uh, Magic in the Dark. I kind of was like, kind of egotistical. Like, I'm the expert writer, and my co author, this guy, Charlie Moss, he's, I mean, he's this fabulously successful business owner. But there were a couple of times where he said, Hey, John, I think this chapter doesn't work. You got to like take this out. And I was like, Oh my God, you're right. Like, Like he was like, you have to be modest where everyone needs an editor. And this guy gave me some shockingly good editorial. It was like me walking into his business and saying, Hey, uh, don't show the Avengers show Spider-Man. Like (laughs) um, that didn't happen by the way. So um, yeah, everyone needs an editor. So yeah. So there's creative tension with the other person, but there's also creative tension within yourself where you're always pushing back. Part of you is saying, just do what he wants. Finish the job. I, but I keep saying he. I, it so happens. Yeah. I, I mostly work with men, but obviously this, you know, I, I don't want to be gendered. But on that point, you do say that you. it's difficult for you to get the voice of a woman. Yeah, it's it's. And I had a good project going with this actress and I right. did a couple of chapters and I actually I volunteered, I It was my idea. Actually, maybe it wasn't my idea. It was so I was certainly relieved because I couldn't. It wasn't just that it was a woman. It was i got to be delicate here. It was a very stereotypically female thing. Like it was somebody who had had a serious illness and recovered. And the way they recovered was like kind of through sort of spiritualism. And I think it was like a yoga thing. I, like a sort of, they were had some kind of vegetarian diet. Like it was a book very much aimed at women by an author who was like very much was, in a cultural sense, like it was a very identifiably female set of things right. in the book, and it worked. That it worked for, it her, for her, and they found of yeah. they found a female ghost, and I think the book did well, and and yeah. everybody was happy, and they were happy with me because they were happy with me for leaving. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. get your male ass <laughs> out. Yeah, 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 yeah and and i was like i was actually relieved not to do it because i was like i didn't know what to do it because i Cause I, right. I could kind of get her voice a little in a in a technical sense but it's yes. sort of like you know we were talking about <laughs> acting before it's like the actor who turns to the director and says what's my motivation i wasn't getting her motivation so Sometimes yeah. the reason I, I've done well with books like by sort of industrialists and computer guys, and it's like there's like, yeah, I want to build this amazing computer program and everyone's gonna have this app on their phone. It's like, yeah, I get that. That's cool. And and so I know the motivation, and I don't ha- but if in the case I just described with this female, I to me I, I didn't get it. And so I was glad that I didn't go forward with that project.
0: Okay, so can you just quickly summarize what you think ghostwriting is in a nutshell
1: so ghostwriting is (laughs) it's about helping people which i know that sounds um cliche but it's about storytelling and you're helping someone tell a story and they have a story that for whatever reason they want to tell the world and ultimately in a single sentence your job is to help them tell the world that story invisibly Invisibly, usually, uh, unless they out you, it helps if it's a story you're interested in. It helps if it's a story that you think is an important one. It helps if you think the way this person wants to tell the story is truthful and edifying. But you're probably going to have to make at least some compromises on all those factors. But at the end of the day, if you don't enjoy telling stories, well, you're probably not going to be a writer. But Uh, If you enjoy telling stories and you don't need your name on those stories, it's a great way to make a living.
0: Okay. Also,
1: you get to to meet famous and rich people. I flew private to Florida in a corporate jet. It's the only time in my life I'll ever fly private. And like the whole trip, this woman was giving me these like cocktails and fancy nuts I couldn't even pronounce. There was all this like, there's a special lounge we got to sit in at the airport. And of course the guys I was (laughs) with, they, they didn't care. Like they, they do this every week. And I was like, Oh man, this is awesome. I feel, I feel like James Bond and, and on a totally superficial level, there's a lot of stuff like that where, because if a person's famous and successful enough to hire a ghostwriter, he's probably famous and successful enough to like, take you to some pretty cool places to do your research. Uh, you know, I'll probably, let me put it this way. I will probably never be in the prime minister's office again in my life. Um, that's like, that was pretty cool. Because of this, your life is, is more interesting. And his life is less interesting. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. I, well, I mean, I don't, I, I'm not sure it's more like I, I, well, I try come not to tr-
0: on. doing all this stuff is, interviewing the prime minister it's uh, cool yeah in his office that's you can now you can tell that story
1: to your grandkids well my grandkids won't care but you do so that's some consolation it's also (laughs) i gotta say it's also disillusioning because uh i mean there's a million reasons why i'm not suitable for politics uh, many of which i've put on vivid display during this conversation but even if i were suited for for politics the experience of doing that book was absolutely enough to say, oh, my God, I never want to do this. It's exhausting. Like, why? you know, yeah. one, one reason Justin Trudeau didn't write his own book, he, he didn't have time. He's like driving from one rubber chicken dinner to another and shaking yeah. hands in nursing homes and kissing babies and giving speeches to 19-year-olds at colleges. And, you know, you never see your family. It's really tough. And yeah. then, <laughs> then you get elected and, and, and guys like me are talking trash about you because they don't yeah. like your policy. So it's a terrible way to make a living.
0: Well, it's also really sad because you want the best people to represent you in politics and all this shit just scares them off.
1: Yeah, well, I, it's but it's hypocrisy because all this shit is caused by people like me trash talking them on Twitter and like it's we say we want the best people, but then best people step forward and we're ruthless because it's yes, like, well, it's, it's yes. democracy. I get to say what I want. And it's true. I mean, it's we do get to say what we want. Unfortunately, you have some very, very smart people who could be making tons of money in private practice. And instead, they're making like 150 200000 a year, which I realize is a lot of money, but it's yeah. not a lot of money for the most successful people in Canada. And, and they do it so that they can be ruthlessly torn apart by everybody from journalists to other politicians, to activists, to just millions of random people on social media. And I got a pretty good look at that. It's, it's a tough life. It's a tough way to make a living.
0: Okay, final question. Best advice to someone who wants to get into the and start competing with you in ghostwriting, what's the best advice on how to do it?
1: Well, before you become a good ghostwriter, you have to prove you know how to tell a story. The best training for that is to write in areas where there's an appetite and a market for writing where you can, you can build your craft and demonstrate what you can do. And so that could mean technical writing. It could be uh, writing for trade journals. It could be writing for local media, you know, to, to my mind, like, let's say somebody is in the banking industry uh, and they want to write, you know, they're a bank president and they want to do like, you know, the history of the the bank of Nova Scotia or the bank, you know, trying to think of a, a fictional bank. The ghostwriter they pick might be somebody who's like a financial writer they admire, who it may not be a newspaper writer, it may be somebody who writes like a weekly newsletter for a trade group. Or this, you know, there are some people who I actually have a friend who did a PhD on banking. Uh, History of the Canadian Banking Association, which I know sounds very dry, but I think he turned it into a book and he he became a very good writer. And and you get on the radar of people in that industry who are like, you know what? I don't have to spend three months bringing this person up to speed about what I do. Proof of concept. They've shown me that they're a good, fluent writer. So you don't have to be like a columnist for a daily newspaper or like a star podcaster or blogger to get yourself on the radar. And then by the way, once you do your your best selling, you know, history of the bank of new brunswick. <laughs> then you could kind of move diagonally to more general projects and you know, you can start developing your craft with things that aren't necessarily in your subject matter specialty. Well, John, thank
0: you. Thank you for uh, your genuinely useful, interesting
1: responses to my questions. That's the most flattering thing anyone has said to me in like six months (laughs) well i could say some more things but uh, then i then i wouldn't believe you well i was gonna
0: say i know you have were you tweeting during our conversation that's my last question
1: i was not um and i don't do that i i (laughs) I only i only tweet what i observe (laughs) and see typically so the tweet would be like god will this guy ever shut up or I can't believe I said that to the podcaster. I'm going to get, I'm going to get canceled. <laughs> no.
0: Okay. Well, that was, that was terrific. Uh, and thanks for showing up in person instead of your ghost. I, I prefer the real guy.
1: <laughs> thanks so much. I appreciate your interest.
0: Okay. Bye for now.